0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Condensed Histories. What we do here is I, your guide, Jim Duduchu, take you on a journey. I find a piece of pop culture could be a TV show, could be a movie, could be a song. I even did one on nursery rhymes, for heaven's sakes. There's real history behind all this pop culture. So I condense both the pop culture side of things, but also the actual history that it's been either deliberately or subconsciously influenced by. Now, I'm going to give you full disclosure. This time round. you might've seen the title of this one as dark and gone, what's that? I haven't heard of it, or maybe he's missing a bit of the title. No. And what this is about is the fact that I've wanted to do something at some point about things like physics and time travel and, and those sorts of areas. But whereas there's absolutely a conversation to be had about the history of things like science and physics and quantum mechanics, there's no history of time travel because time travel doesn't exist. You're just not thinking fourth dimensionally. Sort of. Uh, (laughs) It can get complicated. And I love this stuff. And I look for the record, I do not have a Ph.D. in biochemistry or astrophysics or anything like that i'm in this area i'm very much an amateur but i've been following it for 25 years and don't worry you're not going to need a degree in it either when we go through this how exactly rocket sand but it allows me to talk about some of the things i really love and i'm going to hang it all on this program called dark so what is dark and why is it Unlikely that you've heard of it. Well, let's go back to something that I've mentioned occasionally the Streaming Wars. Where we have Amazon versus Netflix versus Apple Plus versus in America HBO Max and Disney Plus as well. And oh my goodness, who do I subscribe to? What do I do? Etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's complicated out there. It, go like so complicated? it is a game where you can lose or win billions of dollars. So, an an example would be news that came out in May 2021 that Amazon was spending nearly $9 billion acquiring MGM Studios. Most people pointed out, oh, that means he's got James Bond, and, and that's true, but the point is MGM has won nearly 200 Oscars in its entire life cycle, so there's some great movies that are sitting there that will become now Amazon Properties, which they can obviously put onto the streaming service and attract more people there and it's also got more than 14,000 different TV shows because content is king behind the scenes if anybody's doing any kind of social media undertaking being a youtube channel or <clears throat> a podcast then there's this phrase of feeding the monster No matter what you do, people will want more later on. And it gets very expensive if you're making TV shows, but if you can go back and release classic movies and classic TV shows that everybody loves, I mean, some of the hottest properties on the streaming services are things you've already seen, most notably Friends. Seinfeld and The American Office because all of those are hundreds of episodes so it fills up a lot of time it takes a while for people to chew through them but also they're fabulously popular still 20 years after some of those things have been released. That's why HBO spent more than two million dollars per key member of the Friends series to have their big reunion. But it was newsworthy. I actually saw an article on the BBC website talking about the top things from the Friends reunion special. So this stuff is is a big deal. And why am I telling you all these things? Because let's go now to Netflix. Netflix has deep pockets. In fact, it's massively in debt as it tries to make. Make sure that it has more brands than other people. But it doesn't have as deep of pockets as Apple or Amazon or Disney. Because it is just the channel. It doesn't have other ways to generate money. But it's been in this game substantially longer than some of these other players. And it's pretty good at it. But to become the number one, you can't just have stuff in English. Now, you know, at the beginning, Netflix, like everybody else, was pulling in lots of TV shows and just running them. Other people had made them, but there were already beginning to be Netflix originals like Orange is the New Black and House of Cards. These were very expensive and very well-reviewed TV shows, but that isn't necessarily going to be a hook in India. So you may not be aware of this, but Netflix has produced more than a dozen hindi language movies and also tv shows for the second largest most populated country in the world india but also there's a big diaspora of indian populations around the world in particular places like britain canada and north america makes complete sense and they've been doing it a lot for spanish language because whereas spain's a pretty big market through various bits of history you're also covering central america and most of south america too brazil the largest country, and perhaps the richest country in South America, or actually speaks Portuguese. But the point here is, Netflix isn't just churning out things like Jupiter Ascending, or the Umbrella Academy, or whatever. They're pulling out lots of things to appeal to these massive, broad audiences. And it's working. Netflix is still got more market development in these other non-english speaking countries than something like disney plus or hbo max which actually is only for for if you've got hbo max great good for you that means you're american it's not even something in britain all the bits of hbo max are sort of cut up into other different organizations and you know i've been able to see the snyder cut of justice league because it was on sky rather than on hbo this is all leading me up to dark 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 is Netflix's first ever original production in German. Now, Germany is the biggest economy in Europe and German isn't just spoken in Germany it's also spoken in Switzerland and Austria and in a few other little bits of parts of places as well these are like on the border areas of Belgium and things like that so it doesn't have the global attraction of something like Spanish for example or the same levels of population but you're dealing with wealthy countries and why shouldn't you do something in German so yes that's what dark is and that's why you might well have not heard it now I have a friend. Oh! Oh, good for you. I said, oh, you know, I've just watched. Oh, this is the other thing. Dark has three series and it's done. 26 episodes, beginning, middle, end. Okay, it is now, you can now see it all. I don't know how these people survived, only seeing like, I don't know, two out of three series going, oh my God, what's going to happen next? So yeah, it's now all done. You can watch, start watching it tonight if you want to, but it defaults if you're in an English speaking country, it defaults to the dub and I was raving about Dark to a friend of mine he goes yeah we we stuck it out for the first series but we just couldn't stand the dubbed voiceovers and I went there's a dubbed voiceover and I remembered right at the beginning it's like oh yeah it was speaking in English and then we switched over to the German subtitle so look if you've seen something like The Bridge you know the Scandi dramas you can absolutely deal with this and I'm going to say this program gets so complicated subtitles help because it's not just a passing comment it's there flashed up in front of you and you can start working out the relationship between different things. Now, if this all sounds interesting, look, if you're one of these people going, I can't stand subtitles, then fine, listen to the dub version, okay? They're catering for you. But I would argue that the, I think that dubs work fine on things like anime, provided somebody's put the effort into it, because we're used to the lips not syncing, but in an actual dubbed movie of real people, it's weird and odd, and it's better to have the subtitles. And I generally, you know, full disclosure, I don't like watching a lot of subtitled TV shows movies i'll watch because it's two hours but sometimes there was a italian very well-reviewed italian sort of crime drama called romanzo criminale and we started watching the first series and it's just it was just sitting there going like i feel like i should read a book on the mafia because if you are watching episode after episode and there's just like writing 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 for me personally it was like there's a lot of reading in this tv show however i'm actually going to say that's a boon for dark and there are also sort of like long periods where there isn't conversation it's just moody music and a forest and somebody's looking scared then yeah that translates through any language at that point we all feel vulnerable in a dark rainy forest and is somebody with us there now if you're wondering you know jim so why is it so great and you're being a bit vague here because dark's a real journey okay best way to describe it is imagine if stranger things was directed by christopher nolan and if that doesn't ring your bell then nothing will or this is definitely not your cup of tea. But that's the best I can give you. Yes. Okay. The the one thing I'll say is that clearly early on, you realize that there's something going on about time travel. And that's all I'm going to say on that topic. But it's one of these things gets really complicated and and weird. And there's sort of twists and turns. See how vague I'm being? Gee, can you vague that up for me? A good thing to compare it to as well is something like lost. And if you're kind of my age, you know, if, if you're in your 30s or 40s and you were really sort of sucked into the into the Lost TV series as it was coming out. This is the thing. Now everybody knows what happened in Lost and indeed people have forgotten about it. It's it's not lingered. However, when it first came out, Lost was a cultural phenomenon and twist after twist kept appearing on this tropical islands like, what's this and what's that? And oh... We're obviously gonna have to tune in again to find out what's happening next. And the last shot of the first series, last shot, they've been trying to get into this bunker, trying to get into this bunker. And then eventually they open it up and there is this shaft and it just leads into the dark. And that's where it ended. And I thought, wow, what a visual metaphor of what you've just done to your viewership. You know, you've just given us another puzzle box to open. And the people behind Lost said they didn't know how many, they kept getting great reviews and and great viewership. So it's like, oh, give us another episode and give us another series. It's like, well, we were kind of thinking that we would be done by now. No, no, give us more, give us more. And so there are literal episodes where there's an entire episode about somebody getting a tattoo. And it's sort of like, okay, well, I didn't know how they got their tattoos. Didn't need to know how they got their tattoos and well that was a waste of time a friend of mine who stuck through i gave up at the end of series one but a friend of mine stuck through i think it's all seven series and then it finally finished and i had a phone call with him and he went i have wasted seven years of my life so the point is this anybody can set up an intriguing mystery something that grabs the attention you want to know not just exactly what happened but why did it happen? And so many of these things don't stick the landing. They don't give you a satisfying ending that works. All I'm going to say about Dark is that the last episode answers the questions and gives you maybe not the resolution you're expecting, but the resolution it turned out you needed. If you look on IMDb, the last episode gets 9.7 out of 10. That's a sign that they did it right. And I'm going to say for Aaron Bo-Oda, and Yante Fiesa. That's the best I can do with the pronunciation, guys. Apologies, apologies. But this guy and this woman, the two of them have produced an absolute masterpiece of screenwriting. There are all these sort of clickbait videos on YouTube like the end of John Wick Explained and it's sort of like, I don't need the end of John Wick Explained. It's pretty obvious. It's, it's not a puzzle box movie or the end of the Snyder Cut of Justice League Explained. It's sort of like, again, if you're paying any attention to what's been going on, I know why. It's ending, but the end of Dark explained, or ex- it, not just what happened, but why it happened. Really, really important and useful to know. In fact, Netflix has released an 18-minute-long video explaining the ins and outs of the resolution, and we watched it. My my wife and I we sat down and watched it, and it's sort of like we got most of it, but I'm really glad we had a refresher and also a further explanation. So, when it comes to time travel. The very first sort of story was obviously the time machine. No change. Everything exactly as it had been before. But no, the clock said 6.31 when I started, and now it was 8.09. And yet by my watch, which was in the machine with me, only a few seconds had passed. But it was never really explained how the time travel worked. And as we go along in the, if you like, the pop culture history of time travel stories, the further along we go, the more people are aware of more complex forms of physics when for example in the time machines era nobody knew what nuclear physics was but You fast forward about 100 years and you get something like Back to the Future. And it's funny that it's in a DeLorean car. But the point is, it's all to do with like this nuclear energy and the 8.8 gigawatts jolts kind of thing. But I need a nuclear reaction to to generate the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity. 1.21 gigawatts! So now we're starting to get into some science of it. And we go further and further. And, you know, you then get someone like Christopher Nolan, who does something like Interstellar or Tenet, even though everyone says it's not. Not time travel in this. It's about reverse and forwarding of the time flow, if you like, whatever. Wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. Tenant is a flawed masterpiece. Okay, I want it to be his best film. It isn't, okay? But something like Inception, amazing. It's peerless. Interstellar also has its little issues. It's one of my kid's favorite films, and it does go into the real way that we can time travel. So, yeah, there is time travel, sort of. And we're going to go into the science and history of all this stuff right now. But just before we do, as always, I'm going to say, please, if you haven't done so already, please click subscribe on whatever podcast channel you're listening to this on. Please give us a review, share it with somebody. I'm at Jem on Twitter. I'm always sort of posting stuff. Well, post stuff about lots of different things. It might be history. Might be about what I'm painting at the moment. Little figures, not like art. And also every episode of this podcast, I push out and, and I've had people come back to me and say, oh, have you considered this topic or that topic? Happy to talk to you. Love to get your thoughts. Had some people even say you've inspired me to buy the book or watch the film. That's all great to hear. So, yeah, please, if, if you can. You've got to come back with me. Where? Back to the future. Science is a relatively recent concept. There were people who were we would probably nowadays call them more like alchemists who were mucking around with potions and also sort of almost like natural philosophers who are kind of observing certain things in in nature and there's you know some people saying oh you, you do know that there was one of these kind of islamic philosophers in the middle ages who came up with the concept of sickness being smaller than a grain of rice so that shows you how far back microbiology and pathogens go it's like it was a passing thought in a manuscript and nobody thought to check up on it and keep going with it actually microbiology and the understanding of viruses and bacteria didn't happen until the 19th century, and even then it was fairly late into that century. There was a time, for example, where Victorian surgeons would wear really crusted with, like, dried blood and bits and people on their aprons to show that they were skilled. Of course... Any modern doctor would be horrified with that because that's just a Petri dish of contamination. And as you're standing over somebody before the era of antibiotics, cutting off a limb or something, you're almost guaranteed to create an infection of the wound, which is why whenever you see modern day doctors, they, they, they're they always scrubbing down furiously and they're always wearing these sort of rather flimsy looking gowns because those are going to be chucked at the end of it or maybe washed, maybe, big maybe on the one so anyway so yes people were trying to get into the world of science but it's really only once we get to the renaissance era and a bit beyond you know the likes of copernicus and galileo, and galileo. galileo. And these sorts of people that we start getting an idea of the scientific method rather than just chanting things, actually observing things, writing it down and in terms of observation without any kind of flowery philosophy around it and also being able to repeat the study as well. All these things are very important in modern-day scientific method. And then we come to the first real titan of science and that is Sir Isaac Newton. Now, he's quite remarkable because he was born in 1642. This is the time of the period of warfare that's sometimes referred to the english civil war it's worth remembering 1642 it's about a generation after shakespeare had died this is a period where there was still a lot of superstition and yet this young man grew up in a post-civil war britain and in 1687 at the age of 45 he publishes the principia and this tells you kind of almost everything you need to know about the genius and the man of isaac newton because some people say, and he invented gravity as if everybody was floating around before he managed to work out an equation to keep everybody stuck to the ground. Clearly, he didn't invent gravity. He was the first person to describe gravity, that the bigger the mass of something, the more it attracts things to us. So because the Earth is so big, we stick to the ground. But as later scientists have pointed out, there are these fundamental forces out there. There's electromagnetism. There's the weakness Nuclear force, the strong nuclear force, and then there's gravity. And of the four of them, gravity is the weakest. And if you don't believe me, jump. Just the chemical reactions of burning out some calories into the physical activity of you jumping means you, you little tiny human being, can break the gravitational pull of planet Earth. So that's why it's so weak. And that has led to a whole conversation there. But anyway, the point is. Newton, despite the fact that everybody at the time, not everybody, that's an exaggeration, but at the time, witch burnings were still happening in Europe and North America. We have found the witch, may we burn her? Burn, burn her! Burn Meanwhile, he's sitting there and writing this out. So you know, being able to get into the mindset to do this stuff, he's known as the gravity guy. is worth pointing out. It's, it's kind of debatable. It looks like he and Leibniz did it about the same time, but he definitely independently invented calculus, which is an entire form of mathematics. And also, again, you've got people like Copernicus and Galileo who had started off with telescopes and things like that, but he improved the optics of this and was able to show you that you could split light into the component r- spectrum of the rainbow. All these things Isaac Newton was doing around witch burnings and things like that. And indeed, it is worth remembering that while he is one of the greatest scientists of all time, he then stopped doing it and he got distracted and he actually spent more time studying alchemy. Do you remember that thing I said sort of mucking around with potions earlier, trying to find, well, alchemy is sort of two things. There's the, there's the alchemist stone, which is basically trying to turn all these things into these chemicals into an elixir of eternal youth and life, and also turning base metals into gold. I intend to discover this very afternoon the secret of alchemy, the hidden art of turning base things into gold. (laughs) Ah, I see. And the fact that this secret has eluded the most intelligent people since the dawn of time doesn't dampen your (laughs) spirits. So, yeah, so it's sort of chemistry, but really it's a lot of superstition and also it doesn't work. So I just thought I'd point that out. So Newton was still a man of his times. But the thing is, he was also staggeringly, staggeringly arrogant to the point where he wrote Principia in Latin. Now, by now, in the 1680s, if you're in England, like Shakespeare, for example, if Shakespeare had written his plays in the 1400s, he would have written them in Latin because that's what everybody did. It was the written, language but by the 1680s everybody was writing in their own national tongue but he wrote it in latin because that means an uneducated person would be unable to read it it basically kept the riffraff out so he was an elitist he was very thin-skinned in terms of complaints basically he wasn't a nice guy but he was an absolute bona fide genius how much of a genius is he well Newtonian physics, all to do with gravity and stuff, is exactly the kind of physics that explains why the solar system works and got man on the moon. No Newton, no Apollo landings. That's how good he is. But what was happening, let's fast forward. So this is 1680s, now let's fast forward about 200 years and we come to the very end of the 19th century. And it starts becoming apparent that these Newtonian physical rules Aren't being able to be applied once we get to the world of the atom or indeed the subatomic world. So for example, in 1900, Max Planck, he's a Nobel winning physicist by the way, he had the black body radiation problem. And that's all I'm going to say on it because again, I'm not a physicist, but the point is that He fixed the black body radiation problem, but implied that there was something wrong with Newton's numbers. And again, sort of round about 1900, leading into the 1920s and and 30s, we start getting things like the splitting of the atom. Obviously, we get Einstein in the very early 1900s, creating all these papers with things like special relativity and and all these sort of areas. And it becomes obvious that there's something weird going on in the subatomic world. And so we get to this theory of, of what used to be called quantum theory and indeed the the people like max planck nobel winning physicist we get albert einstein Nobel winning physicist. We get Niles Bohr. He was German, oh, sorry, sorry he, was, he was Danish by the way. He's also a Nobel prize winning physicist. And Erwin Schrödinger, he's uh, Austrian-Irish, but He's also a Nobel prize winning physicist. So these guys are smart, super duper smart. And between them, we finally get things like quantum mechanics. And again, you've tuned in for history and things like that. But this is a history of of science. So it's really only been in the last hundred years or so that we've been able to start delving into the subatomic world. And it's weird, as in it makes no sense when you scale it up to our size. Things can dip in and out of reality, apparently. Things can just appear and then disappear. And it doesn't seem to... It's almost like, were they ever there in the first place? It's very, very odd. And so... I mentioned there Erwin Schrodinger. Now, he is perhaps the least well-known out of the ones I just mentioned, but almost everybody has heard of Schrödinger's cat. It is black and white and cat. And I thought I would mention this because this was a genuine thought experiment that Erwin Schrödinger came up in 1935 to show you the problem of superposition of subatomic particles. The point about this is there are times when it looks like it's nothing until we look at it and then it becomes something, which again is insane to say but is absolutely provable at a subatomic level. So to get this idea of how something can be two things at the same time, he came up with this thought experiment basically saying, we put a cat in a box and next to the cat, there's a Geiger counter, a small amount of radioactive material, and there's a flask of poison. And if the Geiger counter picks up the one atom of radioactive atomic material, if it decays, then the poison is spilled and the cat dies. But if it doesn't decay, the Geiger counter counts nothing, and the cat is alive. And because It can be both at the same time at a subatomic level. That means while the box is shut, we don't know which universe we're living in. Are we living in the universe with a live cat or living in a universe with a dead cat? And so you can genuinely say because it hasn't yet been observed that because of this, this random element and this superposition concept, that the cat is, until we open the box, both alive and both dead. And then you open the box, you observe the state of the cat, alive, dead, and you have now destroyed the superposition wave of this subatomic particle because it's now been observed and it has to be one thing or the other. It can't be both simultaneous when you observe it. I know this all sounds insane and crazy and yet it's this kind of concept you can see that starts leading to sci-fi writers writing all kinds of things and yeah yeah you know dark's definitely in this sort of area as interstellar and endless other kind of sci-fi stories out there now i did say that the time travel is sort of possible in the sense that if we go back to gravity the more gravity there is and if there's an extreme amount of concentrated gravity things like black holes it can not only bend light towards it because of the extreme gravitational pull, but it can also warp space-time. Einstein is the first person to have come up with this, the idea that that, that space and time are almost combined. And the common phrase you get again and again, and I've spoken to a physicist and say, you know, I'm told that basically imagine a rubber sheet and then you put a bowling ball in the rubber sheet and everything warps around that bowling ball. And that's basically how space-time works around a strong gravitational field. And he said, it's so chilling, he said, yes, that's what we tell you. As if there's another layer that we can't handle. And I, and I did sort of say, why is, did you phrase it that way? He goes, oh, it just gets really complicated with maths and, and, you know, I'd have to sit here all day trying to explain the mathematics to you. So yeah, just stick with that in your mind. It's like, okay, fine. I, I will then. Thank you very much. But basically, If you're warping space-time, then here's another wonderful weird thought experiment that if you were to go to the edge of a black hole, which is called an event horizon, if you jumped into that, that black hole, I would not advise this. You're highly likely, well, you will die. The point is from your point of view, you are sucked at basically the speed of light into the singularity of the black hole. And because there is massive gravitational changes over tiny, tiny areas, it means your feet are far enough away from your head That you would undergo something referred to and i'm not making this up this is in actual science textbooks spaghettification yeah you basically turn into long strings of matter you're dead you're just ripped into your component atoms and you'll now sit in the bottom of a black hole for almost all of eternity eventually all black holes over enough time will eventually wear out but that's again whole other thing however If I'm in a spaceship watching you fall into the black hole, the closer you get to the event horizon, the more time seems to slow down. So whereas you in the black hole, this all happens pretty much instantaneously and poof, you're gone. From my point of view, you're moving slower and slower till it looks like you're just a statue you're red shifting as well which means you, the blues are coming out of you and you can sort of basically get becoming more and more purple as it were you know it's because of the light distortion so from my point of view i could visit you in a hundred years and you'll still basically be in the same place on the edge of that event horizon i won't be able to communicate with you you won't be able to see me but i can see you there on the edge frozen in time but you have actually already being crushed to death in the black hole so it's this this distortion of space and time and gravity that does lead to people saying you know that there is a sort of time travel but it's not like you can ever travel back in time and dean einstein proved this and somebody said but what if the universe was curved then we would be able to travel in time and his response is Yes, but it isn't. <laughs> so there are all these sorts of weird things that happen in real science that cannot be sort of like either misexplained or exaggerated or extrapolated. That are turned into these wonderful sci-fi shows and stories that we all adore. A black hole sucks time and matter out of the universe. A white hole returns it. Is that thing spewing time back into the universe? Precisely. That's why we're experiencing these curious time phenomena on board. And dark is part of this real experience. There is this wonderful sort of philosophical thought experiment around time travel saying, if time travel genuinely exists in the future, then there are some problems with that. Like, for example, when it comes to key events in history, why aren't there more people standing there just watching it? Because there would be time travel tourists who would not want to see the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus. Or... I don't know, the Battle of Waterloo, if you're a bit more bloodthirsty. The, the, the point is that there'll be a thing in history that you want to see, and you then get into something called the grandfather paradox, where if you go back in time and kill your own grandfather, then you can't be born. So you can't go back in time and kill your grandfather. Above all else, it is our sacred duty to preserve the past exactly as it was. Well, I killed my grandfather. Whoa! So it, it, you know, it's like, so what's the solution there? And there are loads of movies around that. I'm, I'm thinking Looper on, on this particular occasion. That's probably the last good Bruce Willis movie. Very clever film, a very good sci-fi film. Thoroughly recommend it if you, if you haven't seen Looper. But it's all this kind of stuff that would ultimately make a historian's life a lot easier, but it would also make your historian's life a lot more complicated. Like this week, did Hitler die? Did somebody assassinate him? Was he sort of killed in the cri- in the crib or something like that? Or is he alive and World War II happened? This is the weird stuff that would, would actually happen and it wouldn't be good for anybody. And the entire fabric of space and time would be torn to pieces. So, yes, there's absolutely a conversation to be had about the history of science and how far we have evolved from the time of a great physicist also getting horribly distracted by alchemy. The last thing I'm going to say about the genius of dark, because like I say, for something so complicated to then have a satisfying ending, which is better than anything, something like Lost did, or indeed the Star Wars trilogies, you know, the most recent one that Disney produced, that didn't have a satisfying ending either. So not just coming up with something complicated, but actually finishing that complicated idea successfully. Well done, dark and well done Netflix. But I'm going to tell you something else. So again, a little bit of history here. Germany is quite a young country. It didn't really come into being until the 1870s, almost by accident with something like the Franco-Prussian War, which the Germanic states won. But prior to that, Germany was very regional. So somebody like Bavaria and somebody like Prussia, you would be able to spot the differences. There'd be slight changes in the language, but also architecture and things like that. So that it's very federalized, Germany. Think America. There are some people in America who think of their state before they think of their country. And indeed, there's an endless debate in America about which is more important, states' rights or national rights. So yeah, anyway, so it's same kind of thing with Germany now you're not going to know this unless you are properly German and I just found this out in an interview around this I've done some research but this is all taking place in a town called Winden dark is in Winden okay but the thing about Winden is I had to look into it. it's like it's not real it's not a real place because let's face it but if it was the tourist board would be having kittens because nobody would ever want to go there it's a horrible place to go but the point is this to make it even more fundamentally unsettling to German viewers they mixed up the architecture. Some of the architecture is from the north or from the center or from the south. So it's a town that shouldn't ever really exist. A German will look at it and go, I can't work out where this is in Germany. And that's that's almost a little bit troubling for me because I should be able to work out where it is in Germany. This show works on multiple different levels in multiple different ways. Um, I so recommend you give this thing a watch. And if you do, I'd love to know if you thought, Hey, Jem, you were right. It worked, it worked out or, or a case of I can't watch subtitles, Jem, no matter how hard you're going to sell it to me. And that's fine. You do you. As always, hopefully I will speak to you soon.